Welcome back, Warrior Next Door listeners. Today's featured veteran has a story that may not exist anywhere else. I, I know, I know, that's quite a boast, but we stand behind that claim. Listen as we share the experiences of Wish Lemons with you. Wish was a fixture in the Tulsa community and served during World War II on the heavy cruiser USS San Francisco. Wish was at Pearl Harbor when it was attacked. He fought in the earliest naval engagements when the United States was fighting holding actions against a much superior Japanese Navy. And that's not even the most remarkable part of his journey. Come join us. This is the Warrior Next Door podcast, where we feature oral histories from veterans whose stories provide an intimate look at world history and how it still affects us today. All of the veterans featured in this podcast were interviewed by us while serving as volunteers for the Folk Life Center at the Library of Congress. Our interviews, almost 200 in total, were conducted with veterans who lived in our cities, our neighborhoods, and often, you guessed it, right next door to us. Welcome to our journey. And we could hear through the hull of the ship any kind of noise, and man, there was lots of noise. We could hear the big guns go off on a ship. We could hear the one point ones going boom, 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 boom. Oh, yeah. What you just heard there was Wish Lemons, a fixture in the Tulsa area, and someone we had the, uh, the, 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 the good fortune to interview back around 2005, 2006. And he is a Pacific warrior. He fought on the USS San Francisco during the earliest days in World War II when things were not going good for the United States. And that's not even the most amazing point of the story. So for the Warrior Next Door listeners, strap yourself in and get ready for an amazing experience from someone who joined the military in a way that we think no one else in the military in World War II probably did. So my name is Tony Lupo. And I'm Ryan Fairfield. And welcome to the latest installment of the Warrior Next Door podcast. All right, Tony. Um, so tell me about, you. you're, you're the, you're the fellow who was lucky enough to interview Wish Lemons. Give me an idea of uh, how this project started and how you met him. Yeah, so I uh, interviewed him at a place, uh, really a, a retirement community in Tulsa called Montero. And for those who have uh, something pop up in their mind's eye of what a retirement community is, you're going to have to replace that with a completely different version because this was more of a resort than a retirement community. Yeah, it's very nice. It was beautiful. I mean, it's a place where uh, people could go and retire in dignity. They had privacy. They had their own apartments. They had their own um, medical facilities on staff like a nursing home would have. Um, it was bright. It was sunny. The facilities were like top notch. And if I remember correctly, and I actually didn't, <laughs> uh-huh. I think the inn for Montero had to do with a connection that that you made there when we first got into Tulsa and started interviewing veterans from Tulsa after we moved from Houston to here. Yeah, I was trying to re- recall how how this project really kind of nucleated and everything. Um, whenever. Um, you and I first got plugged into interviewing veterans in the Tulsa area uh, after we both kind of moved up here with separate companies, you know. Um, uh, there was this fellow, Herb Ponto, who was, a, uh, mm-hmm. you know, one of, the, um, one of the guys that was involved in the World War II Veterans of Tulsa group. And he said, yeah, why don't you come to 
to one of our meetings and you can just kind of, you know, meet all the guys. And there's probably 40 vets there at the time. I'm like, Oh my gosh, you know? And, um, so anyway, we, um, we meet Herb and, um, you know, we, we actually interviewed Herb not long after that. He was the first interview we did in Tulsa as a team after we had done so many down in Houston. And, um, then, you know, a few years later, um, Herb calls me out of the blue one day. He's like, he goes, Hey, he goes, I just moved to Montero. And he said, you know, there are a hundred World War II veterans <laughs> right. living here. Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> he goes, you need to see if you can come out here and do one of your interview projects and interview a bunch of veterans. I'm like, oh my, Herb, that would be fantastic. Yeah. So he put me in touch with uh, the activities coordinator there. I forget her name now, um, but super nice. And she said, yep, that sounds like a great thing to do. Um, and so we, we got hooked up there. We got, we got a whole list of veterans. I think we had around 30. Yeah at least yeah. that that signed up to be interviewed and Tony tell the audience about the digs they gave us to do these interviews in it was amazing they had uh, basically a model apartment that you know perspective um, residents could go in and, and check out and see what the living conditions would be like just like you would see like in a new housing community they'll have yeah. like, the model homes and so when you went into they basically offered us the services of one of these apartments is a two bedroom apartment if mm-hmm. i recall and you went in and it's really nice. It's it's what you would think of for a high-end... Like a uh, condo. A condo, yes. It, it, it looked more like a condo. And they basically had you in one room and I was in another bedroom and the people could come in uh, as we... Okay, Herb Ponto, first off, is like an extrovert of the first order. Okay, <laughs> I mean, he, he knows everyone. He's the kind of person that like, you know, connects people. So between the work that he did that Ryan just described and this coordinator, we actually had a schedule. Yes. We had people sign up for, for blocks of time. I think they were one hour blocks for the interview. Yeah. We didn't even know who was coming that day. We had no idea (laughs) what we were in for. And we just, we just luxuriated in this wonderful setting that was relatively quiet as these veterans came in and the stories we heard were absolutely amazing. You know, and looking back now, what I regret is that we had them on a schedule. So we had to get our interview done in like 45 minutes. Yes. And so we, a lot of times when you meet with these guys in their own home, you can let tape roll for two hours because there's no hurry, you know? Um, And so, you know, a lot of these guys, we we could have probably done a couple of hours with, but we were on a a schedule. We had, we, you know, one interview would start at 10 and the next guy's going to be there at 11, you know? And well, And something else that happened that was cool that you just jogged my memory about, I'd forgotten about, is there were some individuals that Herb really wanted us to talk to and they were reluctant to do it. Mm. And they did not sign up. We would come back for several weeks after that and did a bunch of interviews with individuals who either couldn't sign up or what I thought was really cool, initially didn't want to. But after after these veterans, you know, went out and they were hanging out in the community and talking and they're like, look, man, it was it really made me feel happy that after we interviewed these people, some of the ones that were the holdouts, the ones that were reluctant to do it, came up to us and said, hey, I want to be a part of this. Yeah, I, I recall we were trying, there was a s- couple of guys that were submarine guys yes. that we never got to interview. Yeah. They were just kind of like, nah. Yeah. yeah, some of them never felt comfortable doing no, it. No, <laughs> I know. And, uh, but no, it, it, it's, it was a great project. And, uh, you know, I think we, we both cherished those, those interviews we did and those relationships we made with some of these guys too. So it, it was, it was awesome. I mean, let me describe to the audience a little bit about what Wish Lemons looked like and what my first impressions were. So again, we're in these really well, 
fitted out rooms, nice and quiet, and in comes Wish Lemons. And the first thing that I noticed was he's tall and he was in good shape and that he was very active and that he was very gregarious and outgoing. And he had this really deep baritone like radio voice. Yeah, you just heard it in the opening clip. Yeah, you yeah. heard it in the opening clip. You're hearing a lot more of it. And so um, immediately I saw this individual who looked like he took care of himself uh, as a younger man or was blessed with good genes or both. He was about six feet tall. And you got to remember back in the World War II generation, the average height for an American, especially coming out of the Great Depression, was like 5'6", five, 5'7". Five, so he was tall. Uh, he had this uh, pure white snowy hair on or snow, snow, snow white hair. And then he had... Um, uh, this, his name is Wish Lemons. He had this, this lemon colored yellow, <laughs> like starch pressed <laughs> What other color shirt. would he wear? <laughs> I mean, he, he had a tie on. I mean, he was dapper. That's the word. Yeah. And uh, he comes in, big booming voice, you know, barges in the room. How you doing? I'm Wish Lemons. Who are you? He was, uh, he, he was someone who, who he had a commanding presence. Yeah. And, uh, and I, 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 I was not ready for what was about to come out of his mouth. Like Ryan said, all we had was a schedule. Right. We, we didn't. Yeah. Pre- and so, so what you guys are going to hear as we start rolling these clips is not only a relatively rare uh, set of experiences associated with the, the time that he served, which is very, very early in the war, including being at Pearl Harbor, but his journey into how he got in the military is unlike any story I have ever heard before or since in any format, in any book, in any sort of media that, that I have. And Ryan and I are total geeks with this stuff. Audience, you are going to hear something that if it happened to you <laughs> in your life, uh, might cause a mental breakdown for some people. You just, you can't <laughs> believe it. These are the sort of things that we have these weird dreams about at night that actually happened to him. So, so before we get started, just a little public service announcement. We are citizen historians here. We don't have people. We are punk rock podcasters. Everything we did, we did on our own. And we did it as volunteers. We never asked for any money or anything. We just wanted to hear these experiences, hear these stories. And that means that the audio clips from some of these are going to sound a little better than others or worse. In this case, the audio from Wish Lemons is going to sound good, but you're going to hear that thing I was telling you about when a microphone is near someone's shirt and he was like super animated. So if you hear a little bit of that, that staticky, picture in your mind's eye, this, this tall, white-haired man with a commanding presence gesticulating wildly. It's like some Italian dude because he's, he's trying to bring back to us the things that he experienced. So you can look at it as noise and let it distract you, or it could be seen as an audio patina used to amplify certain things he's saying. <laughs> well, that's a good setup. <laughs> so, I mean, so what happened was Tony had a lapel mic yep. on Wish's collar. Wish was wearing a very freshly pressed, starched, heavily starched shirt that grinds against yeah. the microphone as he moves. Yeah. And so it sounds a bit like an AM radio, right? You know, because we we what we're having to do here is pull down some of the high end on the EQ to get rid of some of where that noise resides on this in the spectrum. So, um, so anyway, uh, just bear with us. But his voice cuts through that, and you'll get used to it, you know. And we'll recap anything that that may you know uh, come across with a little too much static or something. Yeah. So. so with that being said, let's we'll go ahead and roll these clips and. Uh, Let's go ahead and uh, roll the first one, Ryan. I was on board a troop ship in the middle of the Pacific, headed for Pearl Harbor. 
uh, I was already in the Navy, and uh, uh, we arrived there on the 10th of December, oh, just three days after the attack, and it was still smoking. And uh, people were so scared they didn't know what to do. They, everybody just assumed the Japs were going to come back because they wrecked the whole Navy operation there. Well, anyway, uh, uh, we, we pulled in there, and believe it or not, they were so jittery, and they had very few planes left. They took all the planes there at Pearl and scattered them over the air field, and then took them in and put them in the hangars. They figured we were a heck of a lot more replaceable than those planes were, which was a little bit scary. But anyway, uh, I got off the troop ship, and uh, they put me to work typing. At the time, I was a third-class petty officer, a, a, yo a yeoman. And uh, uh, they said, oh, uh, well, anyway, I've got some, the funny part in that, maybe I ought to go back. Yeah, we're going to have to go back. So we often start these interviews with these World War II vets asking them where they were when Pearl Harbor was attacked because that allows them to kind of, you know, ground themselves a bit, talk about what they were doing before the war. But in this particular case, Wish's journey into the Navy was far more complex and convoluted than anything you can imagine. But what we what we can share with you now is that he was in the Navy before the war started. He was there before World War II, before yeah. December 7th. Obviously, if he arrived three days later, he was yes. on his way out totally. when he got hit. He, he was already there. So now he's going to have to ratchet things back and do some splaining. And uh, this is where his journey into the military starts to get really, really interesting. Back in June of 41, I was a graduate student at Boston University hunting for a, a Ph.D. in philosophy. <clears throat> and uh, I hadn't had a, I had four jobs, none of which paid a dime. They all gave me troops, I mean, tuition, breaks, uh, sleeping, all that kind of stuff. And I was so exhausted and disgusted with being totally broke all the time, which was a common occurrence back in the Depression days, that I saw in the paper that they were uh, enlist, uh, starting a new program in the Navy called the 90 Day Wonders. They make you an officer in 90 days. And so I thought, by George, I think I'll just apply for that. At least I'll have some income. I didn't know there was going to be a world war. <laughs> had no idea. Be sure and understand that. <laughs> I don't think I would have done this then. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, they uh, accepted me. And it was no problem. Uh, and uh, uh, there in Oklahoma City, where I was, and they gave me a physical and they got me all in the Navy and and I got on a train headed for uh, Chicago, the Naval Training Station there, where they were going to give us that training of 90 day, for 90-day wonders, and I'd be an officer when I got through. Well, that sounds like a deal. So for those who may not know what the 90-day wonder is, it was part of the United States Naval Reserve Midshipman School. And it was something that would start actually the year before he applied, in June of 1940, when FDR and the military started to kind of read the tea leaves and say, I think war is a coming and we're not ready for it. And we're going to need a heck of a lot more officers and leaders and soldiers and tanks and planes and everything. 
So the goal was to train about 36,000 of these Naval Reserve officers so that they could command what was a vastly expanding U.S. Navy fleet. And so what, what, what he's referring to is this big buildup, and he had college education, so he could have gone to what this would have been, which is kind of an OCS, officer's kind of candidate training school. And after 90 days, after you got indoctrinated and had the training, you would come out as an officer, an ensign. So, I mean, that sounds pretty good. That's interesting because, you know, later on in Vietnam, the 90-day wonders were kind of mentioned in a little bit of a derogatory term. Absolutely. You know, because they uh, uh, were basically, you know, shortcutting, you know, the system that everyone else was in yep. to leapfrog and go up the chain. So, but what was interesting here is the fact that, you know, they, they were preparing for war. They needed people bad and they were realizing it. They were only six months out from yep. being in a world war. And, um, and you got to keep in mind, yeah. these, these guys were going into the reserve. Mm. So this was the idea was to go to school, become an officer, go in reserve, get paid and hope there's not a war. But this isn't so. OK, I, I said, you know, his path to the military is kind of interesting. This doesn't sound super interesting. Well, keep listening. Anyway, we arrived there and uh, on the second day I was there, they gave us another physical. And do you know, they just, they said, we can't accept you. Your teeth don't meet right. <laughs> and they were judging on the basis of Annapolis standards. And, and later on in the Navy, I sold them the officers like this. <laughs> but, you know, they wouldn't, none wouldn't meet right. I might be in the air and, and have trouble with my hearing and ear and all that. So uh, they said, we're going to have to discharge you. Now, we can't give you an honorable discharge because you really haven't been in the Navy yet very much. And number two, we can't give you a bad discharge because that's not going to be right. So we're going to give you a good discharge. I'd never heard of one. So they gave me a good discharge. By the way, when I left Oklahoma City, there must have been 50 to 75 people there at the Santa Fe Railroad Station waving goodbye to me and saying so long and what a great thing this was. And I was so excited about it. Then I had to come back with the tail between my legs to Oklahoma City and telling them that I had been discharged because my teeth didn't meet right. <laughs> uh, that was very upsetting. That would be tough. <laughs> it would be. I mean, here he is. Hey, I'm going to go be an officer. I got this degree in philosophy. I can't do anything with it. And the dad's probably thinking, oh, thank God. He's going to go be an officer. He's going to make money. <laughs> well, I mean, and I don't know how many times we've heard guys uh, that join the military that the the teeth thing was a big deal. Especially back then. Yeah. This is pre-war, and the enlistment standards, recruitment standards were much higher. And he's absolutely right. And we have interviews like with Harvey Hunt and others where they talk about as the war progressed, they had to be a little less picky about things like your 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 teeth. And in fact, the military started to do a lot of work to fix these things. Yeah. Right. To allow these men to go ahead and participate in the war. Yeah, because they're turning away a lot of guys. Yes. You know, and uh, probably more, probably turning away more than they were bringing in because yeah. of these standards. Well, here you, you got this, this, and you're going to hear more about this later. Because this is, of the depression and the malnutrition. You absolutely. Know? Yeah. So you got this big strapping six foot, you know, college educated dude, and you turn him away because of his bite. So yeah, that would get fixed. But so, all right, we've, we've already hit kind of a bump in the road, right? I mean, the story was, hey, I'm going to go and do be a 90 day wonder. And now he's kind of got run off. So how did he get in the Navy? So we're going to go ahead and kick the next clip around and you're going to start to see the strangeness and his odyssey develop. Well, the end result of it was I still didn't, I still wanted a job that paid something. <laughs> 
So I said, well, surely there's something else that I can do in the Navy. And so they said, well, yeah, you ought to with all, you've got a, a, a master's degree and, uh, in philosophy and, and a year on, on a PhD at Boston. And so uh, we'll find something. So they went to work. Well, you know what? They couldn't find anything. <laughs> what would they do with a guy whose extra education was in the realm of philosophy? Because I planned to be a professor of philosophy in some ivy-covered school back there, you know, one day. Well, uh, can you type? I, yeah, I'm an excellent typist. Okay, uh, we'll make you a, a, a third-class petty officer and, and put you in the Navy. Well, they didn't, they didn't say anything about my teeth not meeting right at that time. Well, <laughs> I went home with tail between the legs, embarrassed, trying to think what to do, and that. so I wound up back in the Navy as a third-class petty officer. They sent me to, uh, with a whole trainload of cadets to San Diego Naval Training Station, I assumed to get trained. You ready? Okay, so basically he ended up going to the Navy anyways. He uh, is not going to go in as a 90-day wonder. He's going to go in as a, a, a petty officer, um, but he still needs to go to boot, still needs to get trained. He needs to do all this stuff. He's not going to be an ensign. He's not going to hang out with the cool kids initially. But you know what? He's in the Navy. He needs a job. Uh, we're still in the tail's end, uh, tail end of the, of the Great Depression. So, um, you know, next clip talks about his renewed journey into the Navy, not as an officer, but as uh, what will become a petty officer. So in this next clip, you're going to hear about him. Uh, basically, he arrives at the San Francisco Naval Yard where he's going to begin his uh, basic training. Hey, Lemons, come here. I went back and said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I came here to the Naval Training Station to be trained. Well, that's not what your orders say at all. You're, oh. you're supposed to go to the Naval, train, Naval Submarine Base over across town. <laughs> well... Uh, I mean, I, I was, how do I get there? I said, let's tell the bus driver that's where you want to go, and they'll take you. They'll see that you transfer and all that kind of business. So uh, I went over there, and uh, uh, I didn't know what to do. And I, I, I walked into this big area, and there were two or three big buildings. And, and, and I said, uh, well, where, where, where do I go? And they said, well, you go to that building there and up, go up on the porch and there's a big plaque up there and it's got everybody's orders that are coming in here on there. You'll find your name up there, Lemons, just alphabetically. So I went up there carrying my suitcase and uh, uh, I didn't even have a seat bag at that time. And uh, there it was, Lemons, Wishard, F. Jr., FFT, USS San Francisco. Oh, there we go. <laughs> so audience, he has not been through basic training yet. He showed up to San Francisco with the idea that he was going to go to basic training, get uniforms, get a sea bag, do the exercises. Learn how to be in the Navy. Learn, yeah, learn how to <laughs> salute, don't know what a rank is, all the things that you got to learn in the military. He thinks he's going there for that. And somehow his orders are not to go to basic training. It's to report to the heavy cruiser, the USS San Francisco. I mean, could you imagine what kind of shock that would be? Was typing that way, and the Frisco wasn't out there. So you've got to wait a couple of days; it'll be through here. And sure enough, about the third day, hey, Lemons, here comes your ship. 
And I looked out there and I saw the mangiest thing. That thing had already been to see for a long time. And it, it, it was, there was a postcard picture of it out in the drugstores that was beautiful, showing the Royal Hawaiian behind and palm trees and all that. USS San Francisco, a heavy cruiser, 900 feet long with 600 crew. Yeah, and so it's a trip. Is while he was waiting for his ship to come in, as they say, he was looking at postcards to see what the ship looked like. He had no idea what a heavy cruiser looked like. I wonder if they have Hawaiian girls on board. <laughs> so, so, I mean, a postcard isn't going to show, you know, a war-weary ship, or uh, it wasn't even a war at this time, just a weary ship. It's going to show, you know, in dock, fresh coat of gray and all that. And he's like, oh, man, and this is really exciting. I mean, well, of course, he still has trepidation because he doesn't have any clue what he's doing. He's still in his civilian clothes, by the way. He doesn't even have a uniform because he hasn't been through boot yet. But he's got a master's degree in philosophy. In philosophy, though. exactly. <laughs> well <laughs> so, prepared for war. So while he's waiting around for the ship, he's looking at these awesome photos, and then it shows up, and it just looks like a dog's breakfast. Oh, man. It's all beat up, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. So, you know, now he's uh, about ready to uh, join his new duty on the USS San Francisco, and this would have been sometime between... Uh, end of July and October of, of 1941, so before the Dem December 7th attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, they issued me my, my clothes, which didn't fit. But it's like he's swimming. It on, <laughs> and put me in size 12 shoes, and I got a 13 to 14 foot. Oh, no. And because uh, they didn't have anything bigger. I don't know what uh, that, that basketball player that... A giant would have gone with 22 size 22 <laughs> but uh, well they packed my bag for me and uh, I went down and got on a boat and they went out we had to climb a ladder chain ladder up there and uh, so they just a second you haven't been through boot camp or anything you've signed up nothing now they're, now they're putting you never on a had ship. any instructions at all they're just putting you on a ship uh, yeah okay go, go ahead I just uh, that's why I say that. I don't think it's ever happened no, before. I've never heard of this. Go, go ahead. and uh, uh, I think the explanation is that the three days that I spent at that Chicago Naval Training Station they gave me a good discharge meant that I'd already been to boot camp well, that makes sense I was trying to think. I was like, what faux pas happened here in the paperwork? Because you're right. I mean, but but wouldn't they have had this happen before where they would reject a guy for not having good teeth? They give him. But I guess that this is a brand new program, this 90 Day Wonder. This is just a completely new everything. And uh, it's a snafu. It's a, and he he's slipped between the cracks here, yeah, yeah. and he's climbing up in his briefcase and his right. civilian clothes. Can yes. you imagine? No, I can't. I mean, you're you're thinking that they're going to teach me how to salute and march and do all this stuff, and the orders are like, oh, you're going to go on this heavy cruiser. You're like, holy crap! It shows up. It looks like a dog, and then you got to you. They have to find you uniforms on the ship. The ship is not designed to be a place where this equipment is issued. It's designed no. where you bring your equipment on. Yeah, you bring it on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's they don't why have they, a lot of space to yeah. store stuff for new guys. <laughs> and, and that's why his shoes didn't fit. It's like this. This is all we can find. Oh, that'd be horrible. It would be. And so, so now what you're going to hear as this continues is he's on board ship. He hasn't been through basic. He has no clue. And very quickly, members on the USS San Francisco start to realize. What in the hell are we going to do with this guy? So I arrived on board, 
And they sent me to the captain, I mean the yeoman's office. And that chief yeoman took my orders and looked at it and says, oh, what in the hell am I going to do with you? I mean, he was really upset. What do they expect me to do with you? And I said, I don't know, sir. And said, well, see that can over there? Turn it up upside down and sit on it until I think about this and talk to somebody about it. And I sat over there about an hour in misery, wondering what was going to happen to me, whether they were going to discharge me again or not. Anyway, he came back and said, we're going to make your, your typist, I understand, we'll make you a, 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 the gunning officer's yeoman. And I, oh, okay, that's fine. Well, boy, I'll tell you, uh, that was frightening. Uh, how I, I got adjusted, it was, I, I didn't know anything. Didn't know anything about the service records, didn't know, as I hear I was a yeoman, they're supposed to be an expert on that sort of thing. So, Basically, it would be like taking Chris or, or I. That's right. Without a day's training and put you on board a heavy cruiser in wartime. In, in, in the worst part of yeah, the war. Yeah, in the South Pacific. Yeah, we're, we're getting our, our, our butts shut off. I can't oh, imagine. Uh, I mean, you, you probably didn't know Navy protocol. No, I didn't know. Work. I didn't know how to really respect officers. Yeah, I, just, <laughs> I, I didn't know what to do most of the time. And I didn't know what up deck or down. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They're talking about this deck, that uh, yeah. deck. It's like, oh, over there. They had to tell me everything. I mean, it would be amazing. I, I mean, but thank God the Lord gave me an accepting spirit. I had a lot of criticism, you know, and people, you know. And the other thing is, our, the cruiser fleet early in the war yeah. shot up pretty bad. Oh man, this thing—they finally, up. at the end of the war, it had been hit so many times that they uh, took it apart and sold it for scrap. Was it ever hit when you were on it, dear? Oh, you got lucky. Black. They tried, they tried, and I felt for their misses. Yeah. And we were, we bombed, spent most of our time firing ahead of the troops as they made these uh, things on islands, as invaded the island. Yeah. My goodness. Yeah, so we're, we're going to talk more, or he's going to talk more about his experiences on the ship during wartime in a clip or so. But I want to, uh, the next clip talks about the problem that he had a little bit with the crew. So you got to remember that because of this snafu, the Navy thought that he was someone who'd been through boot, been through some sort of training that allowed him to have a rank of sorts when he would go on board ship. Well, this rank that he ended up getting was higher than oh, a large gosh. number of people on the ship. So, there's a, so as word got out that the Navy screwed something up royally and they basically have a civilian on board ship that's trying to figure out what sort of sailor work they're going to do. And then they find out his rank and it's higher than theirs. So yeah, that's the, not going to be good. <laughs> no. So play the next clip. Cause when he talked about this, I was like, Oh, I didn't even thought about that. We took off then. That was the 10th. No, no, it was, it must've been 11th, 12th, 13th. And then in three days we shipped out of Pearl. Now fellas, that, we went with all that was left of the United States Navy at Pearl Harbor. I mean, there were there was a aircraft carrier, and I can't think of the cotton picking name. One aircraft carrier, four heavy cruisers, and eleven destroyers. No battleships. All of them had been absolutely ruined, and we, and we had no radar, and we were heading out to the South Pacific because we expected the Japanese to return at any time. Well, <clears throat> since I. Oh, and I was the second U Naval Reserve on board ship 
one other guy had gotten in first and, and, and then me. But you've never been on a ship before. No, huh? I, I was a reserve. And then I discovered that guys on that ship had been striking for third-class petty officer for seven years. And here, the government made me a third-class petty officer right off the bat. If I'd have been an officer, then nobody would have questioned me. But as it turns out, everybody knew I was stupid and didn't know a thing about what was going on. Yeah. Oh, so, gosh. So you, you hear a little bit of uh, foreshadowing about what is to come. He's at Pearl Harbor, and it had been bombed. And now they're about to sortie out in the Pacific. But before we get into that part of it, that history of the ship that he's going to talk more about... I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about the, uh, the USS San Francisco itself. So the USS San Francisco is a heavy cruiser. Um, it was commissioned in 1934. So the ship was about, you know, six, seven years old by the time he went on board of, of the ship. And it would have been, it was a class of seven uh, uh, heavy cruisers. And these heavy cruisers would have been the most modern cruiser that was available when the war started. Now, it wouldn't be very long after Pearl Harbor when all of the, uh, the, 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 the productive capacity of the United States would start to bring a lot of new ships into the Pacific. But for about the first year after Pearl Harbor was attacked, through all of 1942, the United States had to get by with a decimated fleet. Every single battleship we had at Pearl Harbor was either sunk or damaged. Yeah. And, and a whole number of auxiliary ships and, and other cruisers and our, our, our fleet was really decimated then. So for the first year of the war, a lot of the heavy fighting that took place on the high seas, especially down south along, along the islands of Guadalcanal, had to be done by these heavy cruisers. That's all we had left. And because of that, they suffered horribly. And as as Wish talks more about the USS San Francisco and the actions that he gets in. We're going to talk more about that later. But basically, this cruiser was, um, as he mentioned earlier, uh, you know, is about uh, almost 900 feet long. It weighed a little over 10,000 tons. It had nine eight-inch guns. That was its main armament and a whole uh, series of secondary and tertiary armament like five-inch guns and uh, anti-aircraft guns. Yeah, so he's just talked about leaving Pearl Harbor and actually, you know, joining the fleet as now a wartime sailor who still hasn't been through basic training. And, you know, <laughs> I as I know, and as he mentioned earlier, when he first saw the ship along Long Beach in, in San Diego, he said it, 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 looked, it looked terrible. It looked all beat up. Well, you know, Ryan has a chance to look into this a little bit more, and let's, let's go over a little bit about what the ship was doing in Pearl Harbor. Yeah, I'm, I'm just looking at, <clears throat> you know, this is just Wikipedia's entry on the USS San Francisco, CA-30, uh, CA-38, sorry, mm-hmm. that's the, the designation for the ship. Um, and it says for the entry on the Pearl Harbor attack on December 7th, San Francisco was in Pearl Harbor. The USS San Francisco was in Pearl Harbor. Remember, Wish is not, not, he, he was on a troop ship. He arrived December 10th yep. to Pearl Harbor, but the San Francisco was already there. Um, it was awaiting docking, cleaning of her heavily fouled bottom. Remember he said it looked like, like a, a mangy dog. <laughs> right. Her engineering plant was largely broken down for overhaul. Her ammunition for her five inch and eight inch guns had been placed in storage, her three-inch guns had been removed to permit installation of four 1.1-inch quadruple mounts. Although the mounts had not yet been installed, 
and her 50 caliber machine guns were also being overhauled. Only small arms and two 30 caliber machine guns were available to defend the ship at Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Moreover, a number of San Francisco's officers and men were absent. At 7.55 a.m. on December 7th, when the Japanese planes began dive-bombing Battleship Row near Fort Island, off-duty signalman Ed Ifkin was relaxing at the signal bridge, and he says, quote, I was reading the newspaper I just bought at the, t- the kiosk on the wharf when an airplane buzzed over my head and that big red meatball was on its side. I was trained to recognize foreign insignia and knew right away it was Japanese. I telephoned down to the bridge and told the duty officer, and he said, Ifkin, you'll go on report for horsing around when, boom, (laughs) the first torpedo hit the USS Oklahoma. Our guns were down, so a bunch of us climbed over to the New Orleans. It was berthed right next to us, and we spent the next two hours feeding ammunition to the gunners. This guy, uh, Ed Ifkin, was recognized as the first U.S. sailor to report the Japanese attack. Mm. By 0800 a.m., the, I guess that's redundant. By 0800, the attack, the attack on Pearl Harbor was well underway. The men of the San Francisco secured the ship for water tightness and began looking for opportunities to fight back. Some, like Ifkin, crossed over to New Orleans to help man anti-aircraft batteries on that ship. Others began using available rifles and machine guns. Ammunition for a 50 caliber machine gun was transferred to, to the Tracy for use, which is another ship nearby. When the Japanese left, quote, he said, the entire harbor was a shambles. The fires, the oil in the water from the torpedoed ships, the Arizona burned for two days. San Francisco was undamaged, amazingly. Yeah, one of the few ships that was undamaged. Uh, at, at, after the attack, and it worked, and the work resumed to make her combat ready. You know, I wonder if she was sandwiched between two ships and she was barely kind of protected from torpedoes. So you that, know? that happened a lot, like with the New Orleans. That yeah. happened to the New Orleans where the ship in the berth next to her, the New Orleans was in there for a very similar treatment. Yeah. Right? And so you had all these ships there that basically getting ready for a war that the United yeah, States knew was coming. Yep. And they just weren't ready. On December 14th, now, this would have been Wish whenever Wish was actually aboard, the yep. cruiser left the yard. Scaling The scaling of her keel had been postponed for more urgent repairs to other ships. Imagine that. On December 16th, she sortied with Task Force 17 to relieve Wake Island. Wow, they went out to Wake. Yep. The force moved west with a Marine fighter squadron aboard the Saratoga, and that's the one he was probably having a hard time remembering. Yes. Um, and the, a Marine battalion embarked on the Tangier. However, when Wake Island fell to the Japanese on December 23rd, Task Force 14 was diverted to Midway, which it reinforced, and on December 29th, the force returned to Pearl Harbor. So that's that's where we are right now. You, what what Ryan just described. What a whirlwind for wish. Yes. My goodness. To be <laughs> to come in on this troop ship. Yep. The which, harbor's still smoking. Which probably took forever. We know from Harvey Hunt's story how long it took on these troop ships to yeah. move. They're probably moving at three miles an hour. Right. You know. And they're going halfway across the Pacific. And then they pull in, they probably they probably maybe not. Maybe they didn't get word that Pearl Harbor had been attacked until they I mean, I wonder if they, they knew. They I would imagine that that's something you'd want to tell your soldiers as they were going into Pearl Harbor. Prepare yourself. And I never asked him that because the story of how he got in the military was so I mean, I was kind of numb at this point, like, holy crap, what's going on? But yeah, I would have liked to have found out how he did find out about well, when Pearl's Harbor. What, and, what were people talking about? He's and, on this troop shit heading to Pearl. And think about this. Think think about the fact that they're out to sea, and he's arriving at Pearl Harbor on December 10th. Guess what else happened on December 10th? Hmm. 
Germany declares war on the U.S. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Everything's coming down. Everything's crashing down around him. And you heard him say earlier, the only reason he wanted to join the Navy was to make some additional money. <laughs> <laughs> and so they screw everything up. He doesn't go to boot. Oh, He's on his gosh. transport. Everyone declares war I'm, on us. We're getting bombed. What do you think? He thinking? shows up in his harbor and it's on fire. I, I, be, I like, uh, this is how it ends. <laughs> Exactly. This is all my luck has run out. There's no way I'm surviving this. <laughs> oh man, what? So, how amazing! And you can even hear in his voice whenever yeah. he's you're talking to him in this interview, and you're like, "You didn't have any triangles." No, no, no. He was like really getting animated. Like, like, yeah, I know. I still feel this exactly. seventy years later. Right. It's like he's never forgotten this. This reminds me of, and I know a lot of people have had this dream, like a dream where. Um, it, you oh. know, where you go to, you go to a class that you were supposed to go to all year and you don't go and you remember that you have this class and you go there and it's the finals and all kinds of things matter and how well you do on this and you don't know anything. How is it that everybody has that, that dream? It's so weird. It is weird. And I know there's people probably listening to this right now. Maybe you haven't had it, but a lot of people have. Well, in that dream that we have, we, you know, at least I get this sense of being like, like helpless, like, oh my well, God. Because you're graduating panicked. at the end of that semester. You're and like this an, means you can't graduate. There's no way I can because yeah. I haven't been going to class all year. I don't know that, I don't know what I need to know. And it's that, a requirement. You need it to graduate. This is a real life example of that. Yeah. Yeah. Where he's being thrust into a war where he could die and he doesn't know what the hell he's doing. So on this next clip, <laughs> you can't believe this. You're going to hear what he ends up doing on the ship as a civilian in uniform. Imagine something in your life that you've had to train for. A fireman, a teacher, a welder. Now imagine being forced to do that with no training at all while your life is at stake. That's what you just heard in this first episode featuring Wish Lemons. Next week, we'll highlight Wish's experience in combat as what is left of the U.S. Naval Forces at Pearl Harbor are sorted out for the first time to face the mighty Japanese Navy after the disastrous attack on December 7th. Stay tuned. On the Harold Dunn series, we had guest Marilyn Walton, the guest author, um, on the show, and we were talking about the episode where Harold Dunn was shot down. He's a B-17 co-pilot, and during that encounter, he encountered a, I think it was a Folkwolf 190 that came along head-on with them and fired what Harold said were rockets, and at the time, we were all having a discussion, you know, me, Tony, and Marilyn, about rockets or, you know, were they really rockets or not? And, you know, one or all of us was thinking, well, maybe he wasn't, maybe he was mistaken. Maybe it was anti-aircraft fire, or maybe it was, you know, uh, something else. Well, one of our users, one of the listeners um, who goes by the name Jack204 on May 18th posted a review on Apple, um, gave us five stars, which is fantastic, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. And then told us we were wrong. And then told us we were wrong, which is great because we know we're wrong on a lot of stuff. Oh, well, yeah. we, we suspect we're right, but we usually find out we're wrong. So, <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, he said, um, you know, his comment says, air-to-air rockets. During episode 52, B-17 pilot Harold Dunn mentioned having rockets fired at his plane from standoff distance by German planes. A host, that was probably Tony, <laughs> suggested he was referring to gunfire from a German plane and his nomenclature, quote-unquote, was inaccurate. However, host, for, host or guest suggested he was referring to potentially maybe ground anti-aircraft fire. 
And this guy says, but Dunn was correct about the German planes firing rockets. The Germans had RM4 slash Orkin air-to-air rockets that they were using at that time in the theater. The U.S. had its own rockets for air-to-ground use also. So, uh, Jack, thank you so much for, uh, for posting that information. You're the only person that's mentioned anything about this. Um, you sound like you know what you're talking about, and um, it's great to know this little tidbit of history because uh, obviously we were unaware of it. Um, even, you know, even Marilyn, we were talking with her about it. She was unaware of it too. So um, I'm always amazed at the technology that gets employed in the theater. Um, we're always learning stuff all the time. It's just like with uh, Dorothy Gibbons interview series we did and we find out that she was working at a drone base, yeah. a place that was making and testing out drones during World War II. So fantastic stuff. Well, think of the battlefield in 1945. Okay, you you had um, you had long range bombers dropping things like napalm on yeah, cities, yeah. which was new. You had jet fighters on the making German their debut. Side. Yep. And by the way, what a lot of people don't realize is the Brits had uh, an operational jet fighter by 1945 that was about to enter service. Was that the Gloucester Meteor? I'm not sure what the name of it is, but it was. It was every bit as capable as the ME-262, which is the jet fighter that the, Jap- that the Japanese, that the Germans fielded. And now we're talking about being able to fire rockets, which is kind of a precursor to a lot of the missile technology that would start to develop uh, in the late 50s and then carry over to Vietnam. And now today it's the, like the primary mechanism for air-to-air, air-to-ground yeah. warfare. right. And so it's it's it, it's really interesting to see a lot of these technologies develop really to the point where they became a harbinger of what was going to come in what we live with today, mm-hmm. what we see today. So yeah, when we did the interview um, and the the podcast with Mary Walton, uh, it was kind of like oh, I don't know about rockets and stuff, but no, there you go, they yeah. had them. And they I wonder, them. I wonder, you know, since the Germans were developing, you know, the V one and the V two rockets, especially V two rocket, yeah, if these little these air to air rockets or air to ground rockets were actually using rocket fuel, or were they what other propellant would they be using from these planes like this? You I know? don't, I don't know. I know that they were using liquid fueled rockets for the V one, which for people who yeah. aren't aware of that, that basically was an early version of a cruise missile. Mm that flew subsonic speeds at low altitudes below radar. Those cruise missiles are still being used today as in a Tomahawk and the Russians are using them against Ukrainian infrastructure. And then you had, that was the V1, I'm sorry. And then the V2 is the, the vengeance weapon too, which is basically a ballistic missile, which to this yeah. day, we don't really have a significant consistent defense for. Mm-hmm. So yeah, V1, V2 rockets, you had the cruise missiles, you had the ballistic missiles, you had rockets being fired from planes, from the ground, you had jet fighters in the air. What was going to happen later on in the 20th century and 21st century was on full display in 1945. This concludes the first episode of the Wish Lemon series. And I just want to add that Ryan and I really appreciate everyone's support as we're a little more than a year into this podcast endeavor. And if you could reach out and share any questions you have with us on Facebook so we can share them with our audience, um, that would be great. And also on whatever place you listen to your podcast, if you can just scroll down to the bottom of that and like us or subscribe to us, 
for. Give us a good rating if you think we're worthy. Um, That would really be helpful, more than you know. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.